Good morning. So wonderful to see your faces this morning. What a joy. What a joy. Uh, if, we're, if you're just joining us um, for the first time, you need to know that we're knee-deep in the book of Romans. And we're in a series that's called The Beautiful Disruption. You know, the first century Jews, I imagine, were just as disrupted by Paul's teaching as we are today in 2022. I'm sure of it. Because they imagined themselves to be in righteous standing before God. They imagined that their, their many advantages as God's chosen people um, made them righteous before him. I mean, after all, they had the word, they had the law, they had the prophets. And so they believed that because they possessed these very special oracles of God, that they potentially were spared from condemnation. They saw themselves. They saw themselves as guides to the blind. They saw themselves as correctors of the foolish. They saw themselves as teachers to the immature. And certainly, right, circumcision should have been the crowning proof to them that they were special in God's sight and they were righteous in their standing before them. So God, so Paul is just stripping them of all of their delusions. Truly, Paul is disrupting them with his truth as he is writing the, the letter to the Romans. The reality is that, that they're sinners in need of grace, just like the Gentiles. They are hypocrites too, just like the Gentiles. No one can obey the law perfectly. No one can. And they are, in fact, because of their pride, they're becoming a stench to the Gentiles in God's name. And as Christopher reminded us last week, their religion couldn't save them. God doesn't care about our religiosity. God cares about our hearts. He cares about our hearts. Reminds me of a tale I heard about a man who died. And he stood at heaven's gate, and he met the angel Gabriel. Gabriel said to the man, okay, let me tell you how it's going to go. I want you to tell me all the good things that you've done. And for every good thing that you've done, I'm going to give you a point. And when you get to 100 points, I'm going to let you into heaven. So the man's like, okay, okay, well, let's see. I was married to my wife for 50 years, and I never cheated on her even in my heart. That's fantastic, said Gabriel. Three points. The man's like, three points? Oh my goodness. Okay, okay. Well, I, I went to church every Sunday and I gave of my tithes and I served in ministry. And Gabriel said, oh, that's great. One point. He's like, ah, a point? And his eyes begin to get wide. And he's like, okay, okay, I got one more. Um, I, I, I opened a homeless shelter in my city and I fed hundreds of people even on the holidays. And the angel said, well, that's fantastic. Two points. He's like, incredulous, two points. Oh no, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And the angel went, come on in. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how we approach it sometimes, right? We, we think that we can, we can earn God's righteousness by our good works. And Paul is just telling us in this passage that we have to look at ourselves through the lens of God's righteousness and in doing so, we're going to discover that we are all hopelessly trapped under the power of sin apart from God's intervening grace. We are all desperately in need of God. Desperately. So grab your Bibles. Open, if you would, with me to Romans chapter 3. 
We're going to look at verses 9 through 20, and I want you to read along on your page as I read God's word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word, and let me pray today as we open it together. Father, we believe that your word speaks to us, that your word is meant to disrupt us, to take apart our our pride and our false notions, our deluded thinking, Lord, that you want to call us unto yourself in utter dependence. We are desperately in need of you. And so this morning, as we dive into this passage, would you please open our hearts to receive from you Open our ears to hear from you, and may the words that I speak be only the words that you want us to hear this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to walk through this passage in three parts today. Um, The first verse, verse 9, we're going to see the charge that Paul brings against humanity. In verses 10 through 18, we're going to see the proof of our depravity. And then in 19 and 20, we're going to see the law's conviction of sin. And I I hope that when we walk away today, we're going to walk away with the keen awareness that we are desperately in need of God. So as we talked last week, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 3 as a diatribe between himself and his contentious Jewish audience. Paul, I'm sure, had many crucial conversations with the Jews as he was traveling from place to place on his three missionary journeys. He would always go to the synagogues first. He would always share the gospel there. And I'm sure in that place there were many, many contentious conversations. So he writes chapter 3 as though he's hearing their questions again and he's responding to their objections. The first three questions we looked at last week, um, and then this week we're starting at question number four. But this time, we find that question number four looks a lot like question number one, but the answer that Paul gives is totally different than he gave last week. So look back at chapter three, verse one, and let's see what the first question was. The first question is, what advantage has the Jew implying over the Gentile? And at the time, Paul said, much in every way. There's much advantage. And you might remember that he described that the Jews were entrusted with the word of God. They had a front row seat to knowing God's attributes and observing his activities in the world. They had the true revelation of God, and they had a personal revelation, re- relationship with him. 
He was their God and they were his people. They were in a covenant relationship with him. And so they enjoyed this relationship in such a way that they also were the recipients of his promises and his blessings. And yet, they were unfaithful in their relationship with God. Question four then comes in verse nine. What then, are we Jews better off than the Gentiles? And Paul says, no, not at all. Because just like the Gentiles, the Jews also had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They had worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And so both are under the power of sin. He says in verse 10, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. So nobody gets to claim special privilege before God because everyone is under the power and the dominion of sin. To be under sin means to be under God's wrath or under God's judgment for sin. And as Paul explained, remember, in Romans 1, he said that all humanity is morally corrupt. In other words, think of it this way. If sin were the color blue, every aspect of our being would be some shade of blue. Every aspect. Now, I have to confess, it feels a little uncomfortable talking about sin, It feels a little awkward because we live in a culture, we live in a world where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And if we we have the gall to call something sin, it feels judgmental or it feels like we're being culturally offensive. I mean, certainly talking about sin is not the best way to make friends and influence people in today's world. But do you know that a recent survey indicated that the majority of Americans do describe themselves as sinners? LifeWay did a a recent survey, and they asked the question, which best describes you? So 34% said, I'm a sinner, and I work on being less of one. Not surprisingly, the majority of the people in that category came from work-based faiths. 28% said, I'm a sinner, and I depend on Jesus Christ to overcome sin. 10% said, sin does not exist. 8% said, I'm not a sinner. 5% said, I am a sinner, and I'm fine with that. And 15% said, I prefer not to say. Now, it's interesting because of the people, um, younger people, so people under the age of 44, were twice as likely as those over the age of 44 to say that sin doesn't exist. Interesting. So I think we need to talk about sin. Let's just talk about it this morning. We know that sin, according to scripture, entered the world through the disobedience of Adam in the Garden of Eden. It came as a result of Adam's decision to eat from the one tree that God had told him not to eat from. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It said, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, unfortunately, Adam and his wife Eve ate from that tree. He ate it, he ate from it, and the moment that he did, sin entered the human race. Every person who has been born from the lineage of Adam is born with a sin nature. Every person on the globe has been born through the lineage of Adam. And Romans 3.23 tells us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So sin has not only damaged human nature, but it also brought death into the world. 
Adam and Eve were created to live forever with God. They were created to live in the garden with him for all eternity, to be in an eternal relationship with each other and with him, to, to be at peace, to have shalom. But because of sin, now death puts its final stamp on human life. And we know that because of sin, the body now returns to dust. And because of sin, we know that the earth is fraught Earthly life is fraught with toil and pain and trouble. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Now, this is hard to fathom sometimes for us, especially when we, we give birth to a newborn baby. And we look into this innocent eyes of our newborn baby. And we see what it looks like to, to, to be alive and to be totally unscathed from the world. And we think, oh, the perfection of this child. Surely, surely, this little life is going to be unscathed from sin. How could sin nature reside in this pure, sweet life? And then it's only a few years later that that little two-year-old is grabbing all the toys for herself and saying, mine, mine, mine. Or looking up at you defiantly and saying, no. And we go, okay, that sin nature is actually coursing through that little child's veins. You can see it from the time your children are very little. But sin causes us to reject God from his rightful throne, and we place ourselves there instead. And God gives us over to our sinful desires. He gives us freedom to have what we choose, knowing that we will never find satisfaction apart from him. The problem with sin is that it affects both our vertical and our horizontal relationships. So it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with other people. Sin disintegrates. It breaks apart. It breaks apart our relationships with each other. It breaks apart our relationship with God and it 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 fragments our own character, our own personality. We become disintegrated people. We become duplicitous people. Sin permeates, like the color blue, every fiber of our being. We know this because we know that sin distorts our desires because we want things that harm us instead of things that bring us good. Sin colors our attitudes so that we have dark thoughts about people and about attitudes, about situations. Our, our desires are not godly. We have false ideas and destructive passions. Sin taints our speech so that we say mean-spirited things to the people we love the most. Sin perverts our conduct so that we actually do evil deeds. We keep dark secrets. We make destructive choices. Sin is characterized by all the vices of humanity. Lying. Hatred, jealousy, stealing, lust, greed, gossip, anger, violence. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Sin is an outrage against God because God knows better than we know, better than anybody knows how sin harms us. We're so deluded by sin, we don't even know how it harms us. But God knows not only how it harms us, but how it harms our relationships with each other. Ultimately, though, sin is an act of hostility against the sovereignty, holiness, and glory of God. 
Romans 1.21 reminds us that sin makes our hearts so hard and so dark that we're completely deluded by our own goodness. It's Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, think with me for just a minute. Do you recognize any of these characteristics of sin in your own life? Sin is this battleground that takes place where the ultimate power struggle happens between us and God. Because the truth is this, sin drives us to want to displace God from his throne and deify ourselves instead. Sin drives us to want to displace God from his throne and deify ourselves instead. We want to be kings and queens of our own domain. We don't want him to be the king or queen king of our domain. We want to be that. And that's foolishness because only God is righteous and worthy of such an honor. Well, in these next few verses, then Paul then proves our sinful depravity with scripture. He looks back to the old Testament and he says, okay, I'm going to prove to you why human beings are depraved by sin. He uses six old Testament sources to make 14 broad statements about the depravity of man. So first he talks about man's character, then he talks about man's conduct, and then he talks about the cause. So in verse 10, we find that he's actually quoting Psalm 14 when he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. No one, none, do you hear those negatives? That means us, that means you and me. And our problem is that we look to each other for our standard of righteousness. You know, we size each other up to determine, you know, how we rank. Well, I don't do that sin, or I don't think those thoughts, or I'm not engaged in that practice. And so we look to each other to determine how good we are. And of course, we evaluate our goodness relative to the people around you. And this is exactly what the Jews were doing. They also were thinking, well, At least I'm not a pagan idol worshiper like the Gentiles. Or they were saying, certainly God esteems us more highly than he does them. But of course, the standard is not set by the examples of the people around us. The standard is set by God's righteousness, his perfect righteousness. It's like God has placed the goodness of each person on a scale opposite his own perfection. And no one, not even the kindest gentlest, most loving person can measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. And so Paul tells us also that we can't even understand God. We don't even understand him. He says, because in order for us to comprehend the things of God, we need to possess all the puzzle pieces, right? We need to have all the puzzle pieces. We need to know how they all fit together. We need to see the big picture. We don't have the puzzle pieces. God does. And only he has the big picture. Only he knows how it all fits together. And also, we can't understand the depth of God's character because sin has so clouded our vision and distorted our thinking. I was thinking about these glasses that I sometimes wear at night when I'm driving and um, they're like dark yellow and they're supposed to help with night driving so that the oncoming traffic doesn't blind you. And in the same way, you know, 
Paul is, is, is making the point that we don't see clearly. Our vision has been distorted. We don't see things as they truly are. And the other reason we don't understand is because we don't seek God by our own initiative. It's always the Holy Spirit who first works in our hearts to stir up a desire to seek and know God. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. You know, you and I would never, ever seek God apart from his grace if he didn't first work in our hearts and give us a desire to seek him. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This word turned aside actually means to deviate or to turn away. I remember that in 1 Peter 3.11, Peter urges his believers to, to turn away from evil and turn to good. And Paul is, is reminding us that no, actually people have turned to evil and turned away from God. And the problem with that is that God has made us in his image. We are created with certain needs that can only be fulfilled in him. And if we don't come to him with our satisfactions and our longings and allow him to fill us, then we'll turn to substitutes and we'll put substitutes in that place. And Paul is telling us that that is worthless. Like a fish who can't swim or a bird who can't fly, a substitute will never make us fulfilled in the purpose that God has created us for. God is the only one who can fulfill our deepest needs, and he's the only one that can complete our divine purpose in this life. So Paul's making the point that, that man's character does not seek God, and it doesn't make any valuable contribution in honoring him. And then in verses 12 through 17, we find that, that Paul looks at a collection of Psalms to now make a case against man's conduct. And he's saying the problem with man's conduct begins with our speech. Notice the progression. We start with the throat. We go up to the, the lips. We go up to the, the, we go throat, tongue, lips, and then finally mouth. So he says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Do you realize that our words betray the condition of our heart? You know this, right? What's the first word that comes out of your mouth when you stub your toe? You know, there are times when we decide, we go, oh wow, what's in my heart? Because that word that just came out, I didn't realize was there. When, when Paul says that, that the throat is an open grave, it's a picture of a person giving destructive advice to another person. When he says this picture of like snake poison being under the lips, it's a picture of a poisonous kiss. Remember the, the kiss that Judas placed on Jesus's cheek in the garden of Eden, excuse me, the garden of Gethsemane as he was getting ready to betray him to the soldiers. So it's the kiss of an enemy disguised as a friend for the purpose of betrayal. Because whatever sins are in the heart will be manifest in the lips, in the words that we speak. Sins like offensive language, critical speech, vulgar words, insults, terms of disrespect, words of abuse, lying, gossip, slander, blame. 
But there are also sins of speech that, that are sins against God himself. Sins like, like hypocrisy, blasphemy, profanity, condemnation of another person made in God's image, bitterness, ungratefulness, ungratefulness. And Jesus warned the religious leaders that there was this relationship. There's this relationship between the heart and the mouth. It's in Matthew 12, verse 34, where he said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The best way that we can assess the condition of our hearts is to examine the words that come out of our mouths. But guess what? The sins of the heart don't stay just with what comes out of our mouths. It progresses into our feet Paul now, to make his case, looks at Isaiah 57 to prove that man's depravity is more than just what comes out of his mouth. It actually is what he does. It comes out in his actions. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Think of the violence that we're experiencing in the world right now. The devastation that's going on in Ukraine is we're watching the violence. We're watching families, women, children running for their lives. We're, we're seeing homes and businesses lying in ruin. We're seeing the, the, the land bombed and destroyed, the beauty being devastated. We are witnessing sin. We're witnessing evil happening in both Ukraine and Russia as innocent Civilians on both sides are being impacted by the depravity of sin that has taken root in the heart of a man that has moved from words into actions. Because sin is progressive, and what begins in the heart will flow out of the mouth and then into the actions. And then Paul tells us the cause. What is the cause for this ruin and misery? He tells us in verse 18, and he's quoting Psalm 36.1. He said, here's the cause. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. The reason that sinful humanity acts so viciously is that people don't account for God. They don't believe he exists. They don't believe that he is present. They don't believe that he sees what's happening. They don't believe that he knows the intention of the heart. There is no fear of him. They, there is a sense, a fool we know says in their heart, there is no God instead of trembling before the almighty, powerful, holy God. Proverbs 1.7 reminds us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And then this takes us right back to Romans 1 again. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We spent a lot of time thinking about that suppressing of the truth, when you suppress the truth. So why is the wrath of God being revealed against humanity? Because there's no fear of God in their eyes. And why is there no fear of God in their eyes? 
because they suppress the truth and because sin has deluded people into thinking that they can dethrone God from his rightful place and deify themselves instead. The hard truth is that people, all people are corrupted by sin and no one seeks God. We are all corrupted by sin and none of us seeks God on our own. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's not really me. I'm really a good person at the core if you just knew me. Okay, how about if I give you a little test, okay? This is your opportunity to just measure yourself up and see how good really are you. Think about this. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can get going without pet pills, if you can always be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can overlook it when those you love take it out on you, even though it's no fault of your own when something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can ignore a friend's limited education and never correct him, if you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can honestly say that deep in your heart you have no prejudice against creed, color, religion, or politics, then you, my friend, are almost as good as your dog. <laughs> We are all hopelessly depraved. Our dogs are, got it so much better than us. You see, the thing about sin is that sin harms us, and it harms our relationships with other people. When we sin, there's a tearing apart, a tearing apart of the heart, of the soul, of the spirit, and of relationships with each other. Sin rips apart that which God has created to be good. And sin causes us to hide and to cover, to seek, to, to stow away. Sin drives us to be independent and self-sufficient apart from God. You know, we see this in the Garden of Eden, right? As soon as sin came into the world, as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed, they covered up their shame, they hid from God, and they blamed each other. That's what sin does. Cover, blame, shame. Sin has eternal consequences, right? The wages of sin is death. Death is the ultimate eternal separation between us and God and between us and each other. So how can we respond to this truth about our sin? First, I think we just have to look it square in the face. We just have to agree with God. We have to say, yes, God, I agree. It is sin. You are right. And once we can see it in God's light, then we confess it. We repent of it. Repent means I'm going towards sin, and I'm like, no, I'm turning back towards God. Faith in Jesus Christ is the antidote to sin. We have to read the rest of Romans 6.23, because yes, it says the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't end with death. It ends with the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So sin is bad news. Yes, but God is not left as hopeless by sin's power. 
By grace, he has showed us our desperate need for forgiveness and for freedom from the power of sin in Jesus Christ. By grace, he has shown it to us so that we can recognize our desperate need. Well, in these last two verses, Paul then is going to connect the sinfulness of humanity with the law of Moses and show us why God gave the law in the first place. So remember, the Jews were convinced that the law would give them a special advantage and that they would be spared from judgment. So imagine how surprised they are when Paul explains that actually it's through the law that they've become conscious of sin. In fact, the function of the law is to unmask us and to show us that we are sinners. Maybe that's how you feel this morning, being unmasked after two and a half years and you're like, oh wow, now everyone's going to see how I've aged. (laughs) We're revealed, you know? We've got more lines that nobody saw for two and a half years. But you see, being unmasked, being exposed to our own sinfulness and depravity is a blessing. It's an advantage to us. Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he's saying, look, God did not send his law to defeat us. He, he sent it to, to save us, to save us from any sense of self-righteousness or delusional thinking that would convince us that we could please God through our own efforts or through our own do-it-yourself righteousness. He's saying instead the law really gives us three important things. First, he says, the law silences us. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped. So he's saying that our mouths stop boasting of all the good things that we do when we begin to realize that all the good that we do can't even compare to all the burdens that we carry for our sin. Like our sin so outweighs our good. Then he says the law holds us accountable. He says the whole world may be held accountable to God. Death and time don't outrace, don't erase our sins. Everyone will stand face to face with the Lord Jesus and give an account for their sins. But for those who have accepted his death on the cross as payment for our debt of sin, there will be total forgiveness by his grace. Our ledger of sin will be stamped, paid in full. Praise God. And the third thing he's saying is that the law makes us conscious of sin. He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus just simplified all the the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament with all the laws of of the Old Testament. He made it so super simple for us that we didn't have to know the law of the Old Testament. We just had to know two things. He says in Matthew 22, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. So simple. If you can keep that law perfectly, you're in perfect righteous standing before God. The problem is the minute we look at that law, we realize that our greatest failure in life has been in the area of love. We have failed to love God and we have failed to love other people. We failed. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love other people as much as we love ourselves, even our spouses and our children. We don't love them that way. 
And so Paul's conclusion is that we'll never be made righteous by the law because the purpose of the law is not to make us free from sin, but rather to make us conscious of how sinful we really are. Because the truth is the law is not meant to convict us about what we've done, but to convict us about who we've become apart from God. Because only then are we willing to receive God's solution to our sinful condition. Once we see ourselves rightly before our glorious almighty God, then we're ready to receive the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. I love this, this saying, the good news of the gospel is this, you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. You are more loved than you ever dare hoped. We all desperately need God. And, and next week, everything changes in chapter three because Paul's gonna share the good news that there is a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The good news is coming, but before we're even wanting to hear the good news, we have to come to the reality that we are all sinful, that we all desperately need God. In a moment, I'm going to give you some time just to reflect on the things that I have shared. I'm going to invite you to the table to, to get your, the communion elements, tables in front, tables, I think, in the back. I don't know. I think there's maybe tables in the back, but at least there's tables here in front. So um, when you come to get the elements, that you'll find that there's two options. There's a cup of bread with a cup of juice on top, and there's also, like we've been doing, the wafer sealed. So you have two options. But today I'd like to invite you to remain silent when you come to get the elements and to remain silent as you go back and sit in your seats. I want to ask you if you would just use the silence to search your heart and to ask the Lord to reveal where there is sin hiding in the darkness. Would you be courageous to confess it to him? to bring it out into the light this morning, to not let it fester there. And then as you are, are holding the elements, would you repent of that sin and commit to turn back to God in faith? The elements that you'll be holding represent, the bread represents the body that was broken for you and the cup represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. You're holding a tangible reminder that you have been forgiven and freed from the power of sin. That you can bring your sin into the light. You can agree with God that yeah, it's sin and you can turn back to him in faith and receive the forgiveness that he is, is offering you. Will you remember his grace this morning as we remember what Christ has done for us? Let me pray. Father, we are hopeless apart from you. The burden of sin is so great for us to live under. It's too much. The power of sin has been broken by the cross. We actually can sin less because you have given us power to turn and flee from sin, to call it out, to repent. I pray this morning that, that we would just come to the reality once again that we desperately need you. And we praise you and thank you that you've provided everything we need through your son, Jesus. We love you and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.